Well, you know, I've been on a Hamilton kick lately, really enjoying reading Ron Chernow's biography on him that the musical, the popular one, has been based off of. Fantastic book, by the way. But that's why, you know, that's a, a big reason why I love early American history. But as far as podcast episodes go, I really have taken a turn toward early American history. I'm very passionate about that. It's been a great hobby of mine brought a lot of joy and so a lot of my episodes with the rebranding and getting a new title and all that kind of stuff has started out trying to focus on the life of Hamilton specifically kind of group it up together so that you know in future episodes it'll be easy to to look up different groups of episodes by person and, and pace ourselves and, and really get to know each person during that time because there's so much to know and Everything was written down by a lot of these people that meant something. Pamphlets were the way to go, and writing was the way to go. Get it out there, and we have preserved so much of that. So I've really been trying to focus in on Hamilton, who was an absolutely prolific writer and wrote just an insane amount of things, as we know, and um, just really fantastic stuff. He was a great writer on top of that. So I'm thinking, you know, let's look through Hamilton and see, you know, we've already gone through his Federalist essays. We've gone through Washington's Farewell Address, which was authored largely by Hamilton. We've gone through some of these major works that people think of when they think of Hamilton. And as I'm flipping through the pages of the Chernow biography, I come across Elbridge Gerry. And Elbridge Gerry ended up ultimately being the highest position he held as the vice president under James Madison's second term in office. And he was the governor of Massachusetts. He was in the Constitutional Convention. He was a member of Congress even before the Constitution through the Articles of Confederation. And even though he was at the Constitutional Convention, he actually campaigned against ratifying the Constitution. He was in large part against, he, he thought the federal government was overreaching, there would be too much centralized power, things of that nature, a very Republican frame of thought for that time, more of a Jeffersonian frame of thought as we would come to view it later. And Elbridge played a large part in the Hamilton story um, through, through the XYZ affair, which is a whole subject in itself of burgeoning war with France, people kind of on the edge as the French Revolution is going on, blood is being spilled, and America thinks we may end up in war with the French. Citizens are divided, being either called with, with Jacobinism or Anglophiles based on whether or not they were – siding with Great Britain on the issue or France on the issue. And, you know, everybody took sides. It was a very divisive time. And as we can see, times haven't changed. That's the natures and signs of a healthy functioning democracy is division, checks and balances, arguing back and forth. So we shouldn't be totally disheartened by that. And the XYZ affair was where they sent over three people from America to try to make a treaty and make make some kind of peace with France to avoid war in France. XYZ standing for three Frenchmen with different names, 
but came to be known as XYZ in America that were really standoffish to the Americans, were demanding bribes before they would even come to the negotiating table, refused to really work with them, just treated America and and their representatives very poorly. And the XYZ affair, as it came to be known in America, turned out to be a huge deal. And Elbridge Gary was kind of a point person for that and even stayed behind after the poor treatment in France to try to continue negotiations as the other two went home. Things like that. But I digress. He was the governor of Massachusetts. He um, was campaigning against the constitutional conventions ratification. It needed to be ratified by the states to become effective. And as the Federalist Papers campaigned for it, he was campaigning against it, even though he was part of making it. So Elbridge Gary plays a big part in the Hamilton story. And a part of that story is a quote. At the Constitutional Convention, Elbridge Gary had bodily likened standing armies to a tumescent penis. An excellent assurance of domestic tranquility, but a dangerous temptation to foreign adventure. Ladies and gentlemen, it was at that point that I decided we need to be reading a little more Elbridge Gary. What did this man leave behind for us? With a quote like that, I mean, come on, absolute banger. We got to check this out. We got to dive in and see how did he play in with Hamilton. Now, Hamilton was well-known for his military ambition. He wanted military glory. He sought out the battlefield in the Revolutionary War. He didn't want to be at a desk transcribing and being an aide-de-camp to Washington as he spent most of his time doing. He did a lot of writing because he was such a fantastic writer, so sincere and passionate about everything that he did. His position as an aide-de-camp to Washington was absolutely indispensable. Washington could not let him go. He couldn't lose him. He was the number one guy over time. But Hamilton himself wanted warfare. He wanted bullets and blood. He wanted to get in there and have that glory and honor and valor that came with that, as was relatively common for a lot of men at the time. And notably so, a lot of men today and a lot of women today want that glory and that valor that comes with warfare. And they're the people that keep our country safe. And the reason that we get to enjoy such a comfortable, luxurious life, even today, as we know, the people of Israel aren't so lucky to be able to enjoy, or the people of Ukraine, or North Korea just all the time as a general principle, things like that. So, something to keep in mind. Hamilton's military ambition eventually, you know, he had many different roles, both as the Treasury Secretary, he was very active in Congress, different things like that, played a very formative role in Washington's cabinet. And even after getting out of politics, people sought his opinions and his advice and counsel, even after he retired from politics all the way through Adams' administration after Washington. And so all of that put together, this eventually turned into the need for a standing army because of the threat of France. They were privateering American merchant ships that were sailing between Great Britain and France and America trying to engage in trade and there was just a lot of fear that the French would invade and that we needed an army to dissuade them from doing that because America was kind of a sitting duck after the revolution. People didn't 
people were leery of having a standing army when there isn't active war because that kind of stank of despotism people are afraid of that tyrannical rule and of the power of government and kings and monarchies to get out of control and end up right back in Great Britain kind of standard. So a standing army kind of stank of that and people took great pains to protect their liberties and state independence and personal independence and were kind of afraid of having a standing army. So it took a lot of convincing and clearly from that quote, Elbridge Gary was against that. And today, we're going to read a document that Elbridge Gerry wrote to the Massachusetts state legislature as they were considering how they would vote on whether or not they would ratify the United States Constitution, which, as we know, ultimately, the Constitution was ratified and everything turned out fine and our country came together and became what it is today, and that's a good thing. But at the time, he was writing a letter to them to convince them not to for a variety of reasons that we're going to read. And he was campaigning against this Constitution that he was actually himself a part of making. But as that Republican frame of thought was during the time, we did not want a strong central government with these standing armies and all of this power over us as states to go bad. And if we give them that power, it will inevitably go bad, which Hamilton fought hard against. No, we do have things to learn from our enemies and from where we came from. We can do it better. There is value in having unity in a strong central government to unite us as a country because we're sitting ducks and a standing army is important. Interestingly, Hamilton actually did have some conquest trains of thought, as we know from his writings. He was actually eyeballing South America and and had these kind of ideas for conquest with the standing army that many people feared. And so it wasn't like Elbridge Gary was way off base here. One last side note before we jump into this document. Elbridge Gary which if you saw the spelling of the name, you'll kind of understand where it comes from. But another notable thing, aside from being Madison's vice president during his second term and a Massachusetts governor and having just an infamous quote for the boys there, um, is also the founder and originator of the term gerrymandering. So if you're familiar with politics at all or you know took middle school civics or things like that, you'll have heard the term gerrymandering. We see it today. Every 10 years in our country, there's a census taken. Uh, the new figures for our population is drawn, and we find out how many people are there and where are they. And as our census is taken, the districts in each state get redrawn. I can't take the time to go into a whole detailed explanation of exactly what gerrymandering is. It's a little bit complicated if you're not totally familiar with it. It's probably best explained with a graphic illustration. But basically, if you have, you know, 30% Democrats in a state and 70% Republicans in a state, there are ways that you could draw district lines to make it to where multiple districts have a majority Democrat in them instead of Republican because of the way that you draw the lines, which would then affect 
electoral votes because the way that we vote has to do with, with electoral votes and representation in the House of Representatives and Congress and things like that. So redrawing the district lines of a state is a big deal and can drastically influence party politics by kind of facetiously drawing these lines intentionally skewed in your favor. And Elbridge Gary was one of the first people to do that. He redrew a, a district line to favor his Republican Party to try to specifically win a seat, I believe it was, as a, to win re-election as the governor of Massachusetts, which also I believe failed, even though he did do this. He started this. And the way he redrew this district was around the edge of the state, kind of starting at the bottom middle and creeping its way up the eastern edge and up over the north side and kind of back down to where if you looked at it on a map, it was very odd, one, that someone would draw one continuous district in such a, a, a strange, spread out way. But when you understood that his purpose was to f fill it with as many Republicans as he could to to win an election, you understood why he did it. And people recognized that and they saw it on a map and drew it in political cartoons as a salamander. It re re represented some kind of mini dragon salamander looking type thing that is worth looking up if you get the chance. I'm sure there's a quick YouTube video on it or something. And because it looked like a salamander and our dear fellow Elbridge Gary did this and drew this out and it looked like a salamander, people called it gerrymandering, which eventually turned into that soft G, gerrymandering, which is the term that we know and love today and that frequently infiltrates our party politics in elections all over the country today. And it's important to note that this is one area that is very bipartisan. You may hear about it frequently in the news when one specific party benefits from it, but don't be fooled in believing that that is an isolated incident. It is a common practice of both parties. Anytime either party gets the chance to do it, they take advantage. And as the law stands right now, we're pretty much okay with it as a country. There's a few states that either just have one can like the districts are, are set up in permanent or have a single district that doesn't change. Very limited. And then there, there's a few states that have developed their own state laws to prevent gerrymandering. But the majority of the 50 states really don't regulate it much at all. And the federal court system, Supreme Court specifically, I believe in 2019, but you might need to fact check that if you're super interested in it ruled that when it comes to gerrymandering, the federal court is going to stay out of it and that states need to deal with it if they think it is unfair and out way, way out there in influencing elections. But this is our democracy. It's what we got. And it's the best that civilized humanity has to offer thus far. So don't be fooled into demonizing America, it takes only a quick look at many countries across the world. Why don't you drop into Venezuela for a week and, and come back and then tell me how America sucks? You know, we, you need to get some perspective. Certainly it could be better and healthy dissent and discourse is valuable and a healthy sign of a functioning democracy. But it could use some balance. 
we we can still respect and disagree. We can push and pull and check and balance with perspective that we have an amazing thing here that has lasted since 1776 and is still going strong. So here is the document without further ado. L. Bridge Gary to the Massachusetts State Legislature to convince them not to vote for this United States Constitution for a number of reasons, which was eventually unsuccessful as the Constitution did pass. So, mankind may amuse themselves with theoretic systems of liberty and trace its social and moral effects on sciences, virtue, industry, and every improvement of which the human mind is capable. But we can only discern its true value by the practical and wretched effects of slavery, and thus dreadfully will they be realized when the inhabitants of the eastern states are dragging out a miserable existence, only on the gleanings of their fields, and the southern blessed with a softer and more fertile climate, are languishing in hopeless poverty, and when asked what has become of the flower of their crop and the rich produce of their farms, they may answer in the hapless style of the man of La Mancha, the steward of my lord has seized and sent it to Madrid. Or in the more literal language of truth, the exigencies of government require that the collectors of the revenue should transmit it to the federal city. Some interesting theater references there. I know... Not nearly enough, unfortunately, of theater and plays and things of that nature, although I'd love to get into Shakespeare sometime. I actually have a great book, kind of Shakespeare for dummies commentary type deal that I'd love to get into. Not that I don't know if La Mancha is from Shakespeare. I, I don't believe it is, but really I only know Man of La Mancha from Grace and Frankie if anybody's ever seen that show, which you know is a little bit embarrassing to say. I suppose I should know more about it, but fantastic show. But if you have more, any more insight on those theater references, please let me know. I, I'm going to have to look into those for myself. So let's keep going through, see what we have to learn and pull from today from Mr. Gary. Animated with the firmest zeal for the interest of this country, the peace and union of the American states and the freedom and happiness of a people who have made the most costly sacrifices in the cause of liberty who have braved the power of Britain, weathered the convulsions of war, and waded through the blood of friends and foes to establish their independence and to support the freedom of the human mind. I cannot silently witness this degradation without calling on them, before they are compelled to blush at their own servitude and to turn back their languid eyes on their lost liberties, to consider that the character of nations generally changes at the moment of revolution. And when patriotism is discountenanced and public virtue becomes the ridicule of the sycophant, when every man of liberality, firmness, and penetration who cannot lick the hand stretched out to oppress is deemed an enemy to the state, then is the gulf of despotism set open, and the grades to slavery, though rapid, are scarce perceptible. Then genius drags heavily its iron chain, science is neglected, and real merit flies to the shades for security from reproach. The mind becomes enervated, and the national character sinks to a kind of apathy with only energy sufficient to curse the breast that gave it milk. And as an elegant writer observes, to bewail every new birth as an increase of misery, under a government where the mind is necessarily debased, and talents are seduced to become the panagorist of usurpation and tyranny, he adds that even sedition is not the most indubitable enemy to the public welfare. But that it is most dreadful foe is despotism, which always changes the character of nations for the worse. 
and is productive of nothing but vice, that the tyrant no longer excites to the pursuits of glory or virtue. It is not talents, it is baseness and servility that he cherishes, and the weight of arbitrary power destroys the spring of emulation. If such is the influence of government on the character and manners, and undoubtedly the observation is just, must we not subscribe to the opinion of the celebrated Abbe Mabel? That there are disagreeable seasons in the unhappy situation of human affairs, when policy requires both the intention and the power of doing mischief to be punished. And when the Senate proscribed the memory of Caesar, they ought to have put Anthony to death and extinguish the hopes of Octavius. Self-defense is a primary law of nature which no subsequent law of society can abolish. This primeval principle, the immediate gift of the Creator, obliges everyone to remonstrate against the stides, the strides of ambition, and a wanton lust of domination, and to resist the first approaches of tyranny, which at this day threaten to sweep away the rights for which the brave sons of America have fought, with a heroism scarcely paralleled even in ancient republics. Whew. Great stuff. So let's pause there. We have a few, a few notes to consider here. One it is interesting in the more refined writers, and I hate to say that as if Hamilton's not refined. He certainly is. But refined Hamilton was refined and articulate in just straight-up brilliant genius-level work that was also a, a stroke of that genius was that it was relatable and readable. People could print it and read it out loud to their families in a tavern, discuss it, and kind of pick it apart. You know, you know, it was accessible to the common man while still being refined. And as we're seeing so far in, in Elbridge's writing here, there is a, a type of refinery, which is also noted toward the top of this document and some of the commentary that this was a document that was actually not distributed. I believe this document itself was not actually distributed widespread until much, much later. It was just given specifically to the Massachusetts state legislature, but a reason that this wasn't widely distributed the way that, say, Hamilton's writings or many other Jefferson's writings or things like that were at the time was because this particular one was commented as as being too refined for the common the common mind, the, the tongue, it was, it was just too high class, I guess, not, not so relatable, which I can kind of see. It, it's kind of coming from an elitist attitude and mindset. You know, already we've seen references to theater and classic plays. We've seen references to Greek mythology and, and, and history, not, not mythology with Caesar and Anthony and Octavius and, needing to have that prerequisite knowledge of Roman generals and history and imperialism and that kind of stuff that maybe not everybody has, including myself. But, you know, to be a good student of early American history, that also comes with being a good student of Roman history and world history at large, history of the French Revolution and other countries that, that rose during that time and Napoleon and things like that. So it'll come with time, but we do see this re refined. One more thought that really stood out to me early was he saw this constitution as an encroachment on their civil liberties as individuals. And he pointed out specific, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily profound for someone to 
demonize the Constitution as this usurpation of power from the states and this castration of the individual in our country, as it were, something like that. But I think it's interesting that he points out the specific risks of that is creating a population that is lazy and that doesn't think for themselves and that once it turns into tyrannical despotism – that the population wouldn't have the independence and the ability to thrive and, and overcome and do those kind of things. And that's kind of what he was talking about there earlier. So moving on, it may be repeated. They have purchased it with their blood and have gloried in their independence with a dignity of spirit, which has made them the admiration of philosophy, the pride of America and the wonder of Europe. Quick side note there too. You know, it's been said that, that, Easy times create weak men and hard times create hard men and things like that. The the every generation needs a good war kind of mentality. And, and you can see them, politicians during this time, really capitalizing on that fresh stamp of blood that is in the minds of these people who have – those who survived – still feel the pain of that revolution where they lost their sons and daughters, where there was great bloodshed, huge sacrifice, a fledgling country breaking away from this world power and having to suffer and sacrifice to get on its feet and move forward and not just pay with their own blood, but then continue to sacrifice moving on to create a country where people can sustain themselves. And you see politicians, I think nobly so, kind of playing to those emotions and those recent memories. It's not something that maybe a whole lot of us could respond to well today. But I, I, I believe certainly military families could. We have many who still sacrifice even today, but in a more kind of disconnected population that we have in our country, you know, it's easy to not even know what the military is sacrificing over in other countries, what we really do on a world scale, what the last 20 years in the Middle East have have cost us as America, whereas at this time, this is a small group of 13 colonies, a very small connected population that just became its own country, and, and they feel that sense of camaraderie, and they have felt the pain of that blood and things like that. So it has been observed with great propriety that the virtues and vices of a people when a revolution happens in their government are the measure of the liberty or slavery they ought to expect. An heroic love for the public good, a profound reverence for the laws, a contempt of riches and a noble haughtiness of soul are the only foundations of a free government. Do not their dignified principles still exist among us? Or are they extinguished in the breast of Americans whose fields have been so recently crimsoned to repel the potent arm of a foreign monarch who had planted his engines of slavery in every city with designs to erase the vestiges of freedom in this, his last asylum? Interesting how, and you see this often, this kind of ironic oxymoron where a lot of the... I don't know if elites of the time is the right word, but the, the more articulate, the politicians, the people that came from wealth and money and, and the people that were on the national stage in early America, how they used the imagery of slavery to cast themselves as a victim and to cast a separate picture about, you know, how slavery is bad. In this example, he is using the terms of slavery as we as the colonies in America were slaves to Great Britain and he treated us as slaves and things like that, while simultaneously 
perpetuating the slave trade in America. Now, granted, a lot of, of people, there were strong abolitionists for that entire time in, in early America that fought against the evils of slavery and many heroic people that even even though there was some kind of mixture there, like like Washington owning slaves, but then fighting against slavery and freeing his slaves after death and things like that. You know, there was a, a heavy mix there that it's interesting to see people that may have been for slavery and everything that it's doing for their country, say in the South, as as he mentioned earlier in his writing, how, how the South benefits from agriculture and this foundation of our economy in the early country and things like that, while also decrying the evils of slavery when they're seeing they themselves as slavery to a country like Great Britain. So it is yet to be hoped for the honor of human nature that no combinations either foreign or domestic have thus darkened this western hemisphere. On these shores, freedom has planted her standard, diped in the purple tide that flowed from the veins of her martyred heroes. And here, every uncorrupted American yet hopes to see it supported by the vigor, the justice, the wisdom, and unanimity of the people, in spite of the deep-laid plots, the secret intrigues, or the bold effrontery of the, those interested in avaricious adventurers for place, who intoxicated with the ideas of distinction and preferment, have prostrated every worthy principle beneath the shrine of ambition. So he's claiming here that ambition has overtaken these people like Hamilton and at the time John Adams and, and John Jay and these people who were writing these Federalist essays and really pushing for the ratification of the Constitution and, and Washington who, who understands at, at this juncture the importance of uniting as a country if they're going to succeed and get anywhere on the world stage. And he's saying their ambition has has got ahead of them and is going to turn into – you know, these terms of despotism and despot and, and these things that we see through a lot of the early American writings here. Anyway. Yet these are the men who tell us republicanism is dwindled into theory, that we are incapable of enjoying our liberties and that we must have a master. Let us retrospect the days of our adversity and recollect those who were then our friends? Do we find them among the sticklers for aristocratic authority? Now, in his note up here, where he talks about that we are incapable, that, that they're being accused as Republicans who – Republicans at the time were all about individual liberty, independent states, an agrarian society, push it back down to the people, extremely limited government, which are very much some of the tenets even today of, of strict conservatism. conservatism. But as a Republican myself, it is easy to look back and see the need for balance, the need for it's okay to give up some individualism for the sake of having a country because you're not going to have any individualism at all or so much individualism that it's only going to be death and destruction and slavery to someone else if we can't unite. And to unite has to come with some compromises and sacrifices, so – but him saying that they're being accused of incapable of enjoying their liberties and that we must have a master as Republicans, that actually, like as exaggerated as it sounds in, in this specific document, that actually was a view of, of some people there. You know, democracy was this kind of experiment that people hadn't really experienced that can people really be trusted with the kind of independence and freedom that a democracy provides? Is that possible? Can we do that? Because 
we haven't seen it. You know, there's a reason that kings act the way that they do sometimes. There's a reason that the world experiences dictators and things like that. And a lot of times people can't handle that level of freedom. And there were some people that had that view like they need to have a master. Here, I think he this is more hyperbole when he's talking about things that being accused of this kind of stuff. But no, they were generally the same men who now wish to save us from the distractions of anarchy on the one hand and the jaws of tyranny on the other. Where then were the class who now come forth importunately urging that our political salvation depends on the adoption of a system at which freedom spurns? Were not some of them hidden in the corners of obscurity, and others wrapping themselves in the bosom of our enemies for safety? Some of them were in the arms of infancy, and others speculating for fortune by sporting with public money, while a few, a very few of them, were magnanimously defending their country and raising a character which I pray heaven may never be sullied, by aiding measures derogatory to their firm, former exertions. But the revolutions in principle, which time produces among mankind, frequently exhibits the most mortifying instances of human weakness, and this alone can account for the extraordinary appearance of a few names, once distinguished in the honorable walks of patriotism, but now found in the list of the Massachusetts assent to the ratification of a constitution, which by the undefined meaning of some parts and the ambiguities, ambiguities of expression in others is dangerously adapted to the purpose of an immediate aristocratic tyranny, that from the difficulty, if not impracticability, of this operation must soon terminate in the most uncontrolled despotism. All writers on government agree, and the feelings of the human mind witness the truth of these political axioms, that man is born free and possessed of a certain unalienable rights, that government is instituted for the protection, safety, and happiness of the people, and not for the profit, honor, or private interest of any man, family, or class of men, that the origin of all power is in the people, and that they have an incontestable right to the check the, the creatures of their own creation, vested with certain powers to guard the life, liberty, and property of the community. And if certain selected bodies of men deputed on these principles determine contrary to the wishes and expectations of their constituents, the people have an undoubted right to reject their decisions, to call for a revision of their conduct, to depute others in their room, or if they think proper to demand further time for deliberation on matters of the greatest moment. It, therefore, is an unwarrantable stretch of authority or influence if any methods are taken to preclude this peaceful and reasonable mode of inquiry and decision. And it is with inexpressible anxiety that many of the best friends of the union of the states to the peaceable and equal participation of the rights of nature and to the glory and dignity of this country behold the insidious arts and the strenuous efforts of the partisans of arbitrary power by their vague definitions of the best established truths endeavoring to envelop the mind in darkness, the concomitant of slavery, and to lock the strong chains of domestic despotism on a country which by the most glorious and successful struggles is but newly emancipated from the specter of foreign dominion. But there are certain seasons in the course of human affairs when genius, virtue, and patriotism seems to nod over the vices of the times, and perhaps never more remarkably than at the present period, or we should not see such a passive disposition prevail in some, who we must candidly suppose have liberal and enlarged sentiments, while a supple multitude are paying a blind and idolatrous homage to the opinions of those who by the most precipitate steps are treading down their dear-bought privileges, and who are endeavoring by all 
all the arts of insinuation and influence to betray the people of the United States into an acceptance of a most complicated system of government. Marked on the one side with the dark, secret, and profound intrigues of the statesman, long practiced in the purlius of despotism, and on the other with the ideal projects of young ambition with its wings just expanded to soar summit, which imagination has painted in such gaudy colors as to intoxicate the inexperienced votary, and to send him rambling from state to state, to collect materials, to construct a ladder of preferment. So he's warning very urgent, urgently here that this big fancy government that came together, this bicameral legislature that came as this compromise with a house based on this complicated Senate that even today we see the average person doesn't have a great idea. They don't know, you know, who gets what representatives. Why are there 435? Why is the Senate and the House different? What do they represent? Things like that. And we're people who were born into this. We've seen a couple hundred years of this play out, and the average citizen today doesn't know, let alone these citizens and these politicians who this hadn't been done in the world at this time. They, they haven't been born into this. They haven't lived this. And it's complicated. It's not easy to understand. And it came with a lot of thought. The Constitutional Convention was a long, arduous process with many, many contributors who spoke many, many hours and did many, many writings and speeches and discourse to create the Constitution. And he's saying, look at all this complicated, scary stuff like this is going to be the chains of despotism that wrap itself around the country as we just read. And you're not going to know it. He talked earlier about how it will be rapid in the way that it sneaks in and infects and takes over the country. But you won't see it even with its rapid overtaking of everything. Kind of a scary picture. It's worth noting that some of the benefits here that, that he doesn't touch on so far which understandably so if you're trying to make a good argument why would you i understand that don't blame the guy but you know it's almost kind of hard to see when you look at it in perspective you're having to make the argument that the average person's life in colonial america was so good that it wasn't worth trying anything new and i don't know that a lot of people would really argue that so much i mean there were all the way through the revolution, you know, we forget that there were large populations of Tories, people who were loyal to the British government and who wanted to see America lose and Great Britain to continue ruling it over the colonies and doing all of those things. A lot of people that defected to Britain after or even stayed in the colonies as Tories and were known as Tories after and, and during the war and things like that. So, you know, that, that kind of mindset came from we can't handle a country on our own. You know, this is a world power that this is the people who rule the world. Like they know how to run a country. They know how to take care of a society. We don't. And now they're, you know, it, it's worth seeing. I don't, I, I would not consider myself an expert on what the average citizen's life looked like in colonial America, but you know, you're having, it's an, it's worth noting that, that's the argument that you're going to have to make here is that that is so good that it's not worth trying anything new. Interesting perspective. And Elbridge Gary, I think, is actually a beautiful writer. I, I really enjoy this kind of writing. It reads more like a book rather than a speech. 
which I really enjoy. I really enjoy the way that they stretched things out and assumed a bigger attention span. I mean, does like just one of my absolute pet peeves and I'm not going to claim to have too few of them. There are a million things that irritate me to no end, but one of them is that I just cannot stand a grown adult that cannot pay attention. I think there is no excuse for that. And, you know, to sit in a room with people who it's like you know, the average speaker, even on even an amazing speaker that is talking on a topic that you are interested in, that you voluntarily showed up for or paid to be a part of so that you can sit on your phone because they made the cardinal sin of speaking for more than six consecutive minutes irritates me on a, on a level I can scarcely describe. I don't have words for it. It's like I just want to slap the phone out of their hands and get in a fight. Like I just want to go for it. I does does a setting it's hard to imagine a setting today where is there a setting where you can sit in a room of actively listening engaged adults I don't know I would like to think that there is I want to be a part of that I don't even care what the subject is I just want to see actively engaged listeners for long periods of time and I think that's part of the charm and the allure of early American history I mean you're we're, we're reading a writing where you know, we're 40 minutes in. Granted, I've been rambling on a, a lot of different things, but like we have read a lot of this document and it was several paragraphs before he even mentioned the Constitution that he is fighting against. You know, like it required that much buildup. He needed to set the stage. He needed to get in the reader's mind and play to their emotions, pull out their history, figure out where is this person coming from and set the stage for them. And then introduce this topic once the environment has been properly set. It assumed a level of attention and comprehension that a lot of people just don't have today. And maybe I'm just hanging out in the wrong crowd. I don't know. Dear God, someone please let me know because I, I can't stand it. But I digress. But as a variety of objections to the heterogeneous phantom have been repeatedly laid before the public by men of the best abilities and intentions, I will not expatiate long on a republican form of government founded on the principles of monarchy, a democratic branch with the features of aristocracy, and the extravagance of nobility pervading the minds of many of the candidates for office, with the poverty of peasantry hanging heavily on them, and insurmountable from their taste for expense, unless a general provision should be made in the arrangement of the civil list, which may enable them with the champions of their cause to sail down the new Pactolian channel. Some gentlemen with labored zeal have spent much time in urging the necessity of government. From the embarrassments of trade, the want of respectability abroad, and confidence of the public engagements at home, these are obvious truths which no one denies, and there are few who do not unite in the general wish for the restoration of public faith. The revival of commerce, arts, agriculture, and industry under a lenient, peaceable, and energetic government. But the most sagacious advocates for the party have not by fair discursion and rational argumentation evinced the necessity of adopting this many-headed monster of such motley mixture that its enemies cannot trace a feature of democratic or republican extract, nor have its friends the courage to denominate a monarchy, an aristocracy, or an oligarchy, and the favored bantling must have passed through the short period of its existence without a name, had not Mr. Wilson in the fertility of his genius suggested the happy epithet of a federal republic.
But I leave the field of general censure on the secrecy of its birth, the rapidity of its growth, and the fatal consequences of suffering it to live to the age of maturity, and will particularize some of the most weighty objections to its passing through this continent in a gigantic size. It will be allowed by everyone that the fundamental principle of a free government is the equal representation of a free people. And I will first observe with a justly celebrated writer that the principal aim of society is to protect individuals in the absolute rights which were vested in them by the immediate laws of nature, but which could not be preserved in peace without the mutual intercourse which is gained by the institution of friendly and social communities. And when society has thus deputed a certain number of their equals to take care of their personal rights, in the interest of the whole community, it must be considered that responsibility is the great security of integrity and honor, and that annual election is the basis of responsibility. Man is not immediately corrupted, but power without limitation or amenability may endanger the brightest virtue. Whereas a frequent return to the bar of the constituents is the strongest check against the corruptions to which men are liable, either from the intrigues of others of more subtle genius, or the propensities of their own hearts, and the gentlemen who have so warmly advocated in the late convention of the Massachusetts, the change from annual to biennial elections, may have been in the same predicament, and perhaps with the same views that Mr. Hutchinson once explained himself. When in a letter to Lord Hillsborough, he observed that the grand difficulty of making a change in government against the general bent of the people had caused him to turn his thoughts to a variety of plans in order to find one that might be executed in spite of position. And the first he proposed was that instead of the annual, the election should only be once in three years. But the minister had not the hardiness to attempt such an innovation, even in the revision of colonial charters, nor has anyone ever defended biennial, triennial, or septennial elections, either in the British House of Commons or in the, the debates of provincial assemblies on general and free principles. But it is unnecessary to dwell long on this article, as the best political writers have supported the principles of annual elections with a precision that cannot be confuted. Though they may be darkened by the sophistical arguments that have thrown out with design to undermine all the barriers of freedom. So this is where Elbridge Gary kind of takes a turn for the worse argument side. Language-wise, just beautiful. I'm really enjoying this read. I love the vernacular, the whole sentence structure, just the flow of it. I think he's just a, a wonderful writer, just delightful. However, he's making the argument here this whole last section is trying to make the argument that to have a constitution is to adopt a monarchy, an oligarchy or something of that nature, as he described earlier. And that I think is just, it, it's unfair. The people who wrote the constitution, people who like himself contributed, and James Madison being kind of the main architect of the bulk of the constitution, things like that, like nobody on either side wanted a monarchy again. And that was a common accusation that was thrown at Hamilton specifically, was that he secretly wanted to bring Great Britain back, that he wanted to profit. He was profiting by driving America back toward Great Britain and reestablishing the monarchy and fame and fortune for his family and things like that. Just completely ridiculous. Hamilton, with all of his faults, was an insanely selfless man. He was more concerned with integrity of public service than anybody. His intentions could not have been more clear. 
In fact, one of the main motivations for just the massive amount of documents that he wrote and the pamphlets and the pseudonyms and the speeches and the constant things is he wanted it in writing exactly what his position was, exactly what his intentions were. The whole point of exposing himself in the Reynolds pamphlet where he where he exposed the details of his affair with Mariah Reynolds and, and how that all went down and published it against himself. When everybody's looking at it, thinking, why would someone write a book on how they cheated on their wife? And that knowing that their wife is going to read in anything, well, that was be, a, a big motivating factor, probably the sole motivating factor for writing that Reynolds pamphlet and exposing himself in all that detail was to protect the integrity of his public service and to push back on the people that were accusing him of improperly profiting from his position as the treasurer and, you know, mishandling country finances, directing the country in a way back toward a monarchy. It, just stupid things like that. These were common accusations that were thrown out and one that obviously old Gare Bear is not refraining from as we've seen here. Although he does use some fantastic Republican principles that I do stand behind and I think the average person on either side of the aisle could really get ahead of, I think more of the argument we have today is how much social welfare should be provided to the man. Because here he points out that from a Republican standpoint, the emphasis is responsibility. It is personal responsibility and ownership. And that ultimate freedom is is dependent on that responsibility. And I don't know, it'd be hard to argue that the average citizen has that level of responsibility and that capability to handle that in the way that people kind of dream of. But I, I think the debate more today is the government can be more than that, but how much more should it be? I.e. free health insurance, government-run hospitals, free college education for people, thing, things like that. How much of a safety net should the government put forth? But I did think it bears repeating his, um, let me go up here his quote on exactly what the nature of government and society should be, because I think that's a beautiful conservative quote that I think holds true today. And really, I think where it goes, ask you in his argument of it here is to claim that, it, that, that this can't be done in a constitution led country with a strong central government, because it certainly can. And I think not only that, can it be done, but that it can be done better because people actually have a chance to survive as a country and they have the assurance of a federal government that if run appropriately can hold a standing army to protect itself, to hold sway on in international relations, to hold public trade and commerce with other countries and get the economic engine of the country going. And, and in those ways, independence can be increased. But the quote being that the principal aim of society is to protect individuals in the absolute rights which were vested in them by the immediate laws of nature, but which could not be preserved in peace without the mutual intercourse which is gained by the institution of friendly and social communities. I love that. That's beautiful. Moving on. 
Number two, there is no security in the proffered system, either for the rights of conscience or the liberty of the press. Despotism, usually while it is gaining ground, will suffer men to think, say, or write what they please. But when once established, if it is thought necessary to subserve the purposes of arbitrary power, the most unjust restrictions may take place in the first instance, and the imprimatur restrictions may take place and the imprimatur on the press in the next may silence the complaints and forbid the most decent remonstrances of an injured and oppressed people. Now, this is like crystal ball foresight. This is this is definitely a valid fear and concern and one that that was violated not too long after during the presidency after Washington was out during the presidency of John Adams. Actually, we had the Alien Sedition Acts, which basically th this this whole number two point was exactly what was violated if the press was found to be doing things intentionally derogatory to the government trying to incite some kind of insurrection or rebellion this was out of fear for for the french revolution the jacobinism that had taken over you know kings being dragged off into the streets having their head chopped off and school children coming to lick the blood and just insanity stuff like that there was a valid fear that in our country it could devolve into that after we had just had a successful revolution seeing what's going on in france that that could be us mob rule and the alien sedition acts just took a step too far and people, you know, actually faced heavy fines and prison time for abuses in the press. So this was a valid concern and one that was a big black mark on John Adams' presidency, unfortunately. I personally am a John Adams fan. I understand that he was not a fan of Hamilton. I'm a huge Hamilton fan as well. It's a lot easier to be a fan of both sides when we're a couple hundred years removed, but you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. I think they were both brilliant men. And I, I think it is, I don't consider elitism and aristocracy as an immediate disqualifier for a good person. I don't think it is. It benefits them very well. But I don't think to make the argument that John Adams had this elitist attitude that he was at times proud and could look down on others and came from wealth and things like that. I don't think that immediately disqualifies him from, from being a great, brilliant mind and a good person, but it is something to consider. There are no well-defined limits, number three, of the judiciary powers. They seem to be left as a boundless ocean that is broken over the chart of the supreme lawgiver. Thus far shalt thou go and no further. And as they cannot be comprehended by the clearest capacity or the most sagacious mind, it would be an Herculean labor to attempt to describe the dangers with which they are replete. So he's saying he's pushing the complicated form of the government that was that was formed is you're not going to be able to figure it out they're going to take over the country it's going to go down the tubes and it's going to be too complicated to figure out a valid concern when you're trying you're trying to push an entire form of a government that has not been tried before on a brand new country that is untested unprotected fresh from revolution fighting mob rule and watching the the french revolution go down just across the ocean all that kind of stuff that it's a valid fear i mean not everybody has the time to be educated on politics, especially at a time like this where they, you know, there wasn't always food on the table. You didn't always have a bed to sleep. It was much harder times. So 
Number four, the executive and the legislative are so dangerously blended as to give just cause of alarm and everything relative thereto is couched in such ambiguous terms, in such vague and indefinite expression as is a sufficient ground without any objection for the reprobation of a system that the authors dare not hazard to a clear investigation. Now, if you look into the forming of the Constitution, painstaking efforts were made to properly fortify the executive from the legislative, from the judicial branches, and make sure that they had equal and separate powers in a variety of different ways. Things that were not, it wasn't, I mean, it was so genius because it wasn't like one power that was equally distributed. It was different powers given to different branches of varying weights that balance each other out so that one couldn't necessarily overtake the other, although certain branches might have a higher ground in certain areas. So I don't know. I don't totally agree with that point. Um, but it is an interesting one to make. And, and in point one, I think a lot of point four ties in with point one where he's basing this off of a lot of the Constitution, some of the Constitution was drawn in the experience of Great Britain because, you know, regardless of how we felt mi abused and mistreated from them and how they were tyrannical and, and those kind of things, we did the, the best among us like Hamilton and Washington, even Jefferson and these kind of people, they did recognize that there is something to be pulled while they are our enemy, they are ruling the world. And there's a reason for that. So let's pull what we pull the good from there and see how we can do it better. And that was an indispensable foundation of our government and our success as a country We may not be here today if they had decided to start from scratch. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. Don't start from scratch. Don't be so proud that we can't that we can't see that nothing is that black and white. There is no, there is no situation where there isn't good mixed with bad in some, some circumstances, you know, like there in some respect, like we had to be able to pull that from them to be successful. But that being said, this number four fear of these branches being so intermingled and dependent on each other and not appropriately checks and balances is looking at the the British system of the House of Commons and the government and, and how he talked in point one of like people wouldn't dare to make a change or set or suggest radical checks and balances or things like that to get the government in check because they don't want to be peasants and they fear for their safety and, and things like that. Like change couldn't really happen. Checks and balances in real life couldn't really happen because of that. So he is basing this fear off of the the other real world examples that he had to go off of at the time. So it's not insane. Number five, the abolition of trial by jury and civil causes. This mode of trial, the learned Judge Blackstone observes, has been coeval with the first rudiments of civil, civil government that property, liberty, and life depend on maintaining in its legal force the constitutional trial by jury. He bids his reader pause, and with Sir Matthew Hale observes how admirably this mode is adapted to the investigation of truth beyond any other the world can produce. Even the party who have been disposed to swap 
swallow without examination the proposals of the secret conclave, have started on a discovery that this essential right was curtailed, and shall a privilege the origin of which may be traced to our Saxon ancestors that has been a part of the law of nations. Even the feudatory systems of France, Germany, and Italy, and from the earliest records has been held so sacred both in ancient and modern Britain, that it could never be shaken by the introduction of Norman customs or any other conquests or change of government, shall this inestimable privilege be relinquished in America, either through the fear of inquisition for unaccounted thousands of public monies in the hands of some who have been officious in the fabrication of the consolidated system, or from the apprehension that some future delinquent possessed of more power than integrity may be called to a trial by his peers in the hour of investigation. To be perfectly honest, I'm going to expose myself here. I don't know where that is coming from. I don't recall anything. I have not read this document before and going through. That's part of what I love about this podcast is having the chance to think out loud and bounce ideas and kind of talk it out. So I don't know where that fear is coming from. It did not occur to me in my reading of the Constitution or or anything around that, that trial by jury was banned. I'd have to look more into that. Um, or if they just specifically weren't doing it for civil causes, like he said in here, maybe they were doing it for criminal. I know that even during like the Alien and Sedition Acts after the Constitution was done, stuff like they still had to have a jury. It wasn't just the government saying like, you're done. There you go. At least I don't think. Maybe maybe I need to fact check myself on that. That would be worth looking into again. Regardless, obviously that changed at some point because we do have trial by jury today. And I guess we'll have to look into the history of that, which does kind of segue into a different point, which is another important role that Elbridge Gary had and that this document had in the foundation of our country was it was documents like this and in large part this document itself that inspired the Bill of Rights to the Constitution. It had people question like, okay, is, is this something that is safe to ratify? Can we succeed as a country? Is this something that's going to benefit us? Things like that. But then it also inspired that this need for the Bill of Rights to make sure that we wouldn't overreach with that and that people would have their rights retained. So Number six, though it has been said by Mr. Wilson and many others that a standing army is necessary for the dignity and safety of America, yet freedom revolts at the idea when the divin or the despot may draw out its dragoons to suppress the murmurs of a few who may yet cherish those sublime principles which call forth the exertions and lead to the best improvements of the human mind. It is hoped that this country may yet be governed by milder methods than are usually displayed beneath the bannerets of military law. Standing armies have been the nursery of vice and the bane of liberty from the Roman legions to the establishment of the artful Ximenes in the form of the ruin of the Cortes of Spain to the planting of the British cohorts in the capitals of America by the edicts of an authority vested in the sovereign power by the proposed constitution, the militia of the country, the bulwark of defense and the security of national liberty. If no longer under the contrail of civil authority, but at the rescript of the monarch or the aristocracy, they may either be employed to extort the enormous sums that will be necessary to support the civil list, to maintain the regalia of power and the splendor of the most useless part of the community, or they may be sent into foreign countries for the fulfillment of treaties stipulated by the president in two-thirds of the Senate. Now, this is an important window into the mind of the late 1700s American, early 1800s, I mean, anywhere in that period, really, from late 17 to mid-1800s, like, this was the mindset they had that like, 
you have to understand that these were people living in a world where the king had a standing military to enforce his will, to make things less democratic, to force his will on the people and keep the population under control, restrain checks and balances, and just have tyrannical rule. These were people that felt the pain of a standing army that they were forced to house in their own homes because Great Britain sent their armies over there to quell any rebellion and to to persecute the people and force unfair taxes without representation. And on top of everything else, just the icing and the cake, you have to give them a bed to sleep in, give them your food to eat and, and those kind of things. This was the experience they'd had with standing armies. Then he pulls from history with the Roman legions and you can look to the Bible and the Jewish Roman relationship and, and how Roman rule over over the Jews, how tyrannical that was and how they were just constantly patrolling the streets, persecuting and and putting down Jewish customs and rebellions and any kind of pushback on the government and any kind of sign of democracy, really. This, this was the experience that people of that time had with standing armies. They were to keep people in line and keep them moving and it was anti-democratic. It was not for the betterment of the people. Which is kind of a unique perspective because, I mean, how comfortable would you be sitting here in America if we had no military right now because we weren't actively in a congressionally declared war? I mean, if your answer is like you'd be perfectly happy with that, I would challenge you to to dig into that a little bit. Look at, I mean, just take take a one-day snapshot of Russian-Ukraine war right now. Look at that Saturday a few weeks ago of Hamas descending on Israel. None of those people saw that coming, and Israel has been in warfare of some kind, and I mean, not officially declared war, but every year there are military violence-related deaths because of their skirmishes with Palestine and Hamas and, and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and all of those kind of things. Like, if anybody could expect violence and stuff like that, it would be Israel. They have a long history of it, and they didn't even see that that surprise attack from Hamas coming. So, I mean, it doesn't take much digging and you don't have to go far around the globe to understand the need today for a standing army. And I mean, I, it would, it'd be a, tr a pretty tough case to say that you'd be okay with that and, and that not to just be ignorance. I mean, it, it, that would be a tough argument to make. Anarchy is really making a bet on the goodness of people. And, you know, that that's a lot of what this argument is like. He's not trying to make the argument as if nobody else will try to invade our country, take us over, surprise attack, or, you know, anything like that. Because he knows that's naive. He's making the argument that a standing army can be abused. So that's a very different argument to make because implied in that argument is that you're willing to defend yourself and you are responsible for keeping your own firearms and stockades and things up to up to snuff in case there is fighting that needs to happen and putting a lot of faith in that the population at large will be ready to drop everything to form a quickly hastily formed military and go fight whatever threat is there. It takes a long time to pull people together to recruit people, to train them, to give them rank and uniform and clothing and food and and how to use a weapon and get them on a ship and take them somewhere or, or you know, all of these things appoint people to command. And I mean, 
it doesn't happen overnight. So it, but it's very interesting to see that window into the mind of 18th century America there. Number seven, notwithstanding the delusory promise to guarantee a Republican form of government to every state in the union, if the most discerning eye could discover any meaning at all in the engagement, there are no resources left for the support of internal government or the liquidation of the debts of the state. Every source of revenue is in the monopoly of Congress, and if the several legislatures in their enfeebled state should against their own feelings be necessitated to attempt a dry tax for the payment of their debts and the support of internal police, even this may be required for the purposes of the general government. Interesting. We did see some, some of these fears be, you know, later on after this, we would see things like the Whiskey Rebellion that happened as a direct result of, of this syntax on, on whiskey and, and people rising up for what they felt was unfair to tax over and, and things like that. So, you know, he's still making the argument there and you know, the federal government, that was kind of the first big test of the federal government's power. Can we control our own people? And in the minds of at least the 6,000 people or so that were part of the Whiskey Rebellion, it definitely could have been seen as tyrannical. You're going to pay this tax or we're going to send a 12,000 man army to go put you down. You know, but how much of that is warranted? You know, we know that communism is bad and that countries fail and fall apart with it we've seen this history backs this up but we don't know what is the appropriate balance between capitalism and social welfare how much communistic principles can we can we engage in a capitalist society that's what the debate is over can we handle socialized medicine can we handle socialized education things like that so what does that look like? So uh, very interesting. Number eight, as the new Congress are empowered to determine their own salaries, the requisition for this purpose may not be very moderate and the drain for public monies will probably rise past all calculation. And it is to be feared when America has consolidated its despotism, the world will witness the truth of the assertion that the pomp of an Eastern monarch may impose on the vulgar who may estimate the force of a nation by the magnificence of its palaces, but the wise man judges differently. It is by that very magnificence he estimates its weakness. He sees nothing more in the midst of this imposing pomp where the tyrant sets enthroned than a sumptuous and mournful decoration of the dead, the apparatus of a fastuous funeral, in the center of which is a cold and lifeless lump of unanimated earth, a phantom of power ready to disappear before the enemy by whom it is despised. Now this is just an argument for the need of the treasury and the push into the financial world of trade and commerce and banking that Hamilton led the charge on for our country because He's right. It's, it doesn't just happen like now to make the argument that paying congressional staff members and politicians is going to bankrupt the country, I think is short sighted. I mean, even at that time, there was a general knowledge of financing and what that looked like and how to handle money and create money and how to run countries and finance them, whether we liked it or not, to say that, you know, I mean, much of the first few administrations in the presidency, people were earning a couple hundred bucks a year, which even adjusting for inflation today, you know, all that kind of stuff is not a lot of money and not what would sustain families even at that time, uh, just a reasonable middle class family at that time working for the government. I mean, some of the 
some of the salaries that Hamilton drew as from different positions in the military and the government was not nearly enough to sustain his family. He was often in debt. Number nine, there is no provision for a rotation nor anything to prevent the perpetuity of office in the same hands for life, which by a little well-timed bribery will probably be done to the exclusion of men of the best abilities from their share in the offices of government. By this neglect, we lose the advantages of that check to the overbearing insolence of office, which by rendering him ineligible at certain periods keeps the mind of man in equilibrio and teaches him the feelings of the governed and better qualifies him to govern in his turn. Even then, they understood the importance of term limits. Obviously, we've evolved a lot as a country to see how that can benefit our society. We've, we've established a good system, and we were lucky enough to have brilliant gifts from God kind of men like George Washington and, and the people that formed our country to turn down power even when the country at large is foisting it onto you. They are pushing it on you. We want you, Washington. Stay with us. The country needs you to unite us. All of these things, he was universally loved, and he turned it down for the sake of democracy to establish a precedent and to, to show that, that that is not the way that the world has to go. It shouldn't be just dependent on whoever can gain power and then keep it as long as they can. Let's keep a rotating door, keep fresh minds in there, and keep people on their toes like he's arguing for here. But we did see that kind of naturally work itself out through better people as time went on. Now we have systems today, although we could certainly use more. Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, you know, they, you know these kind of people that have been in Congress their entire lives, and that you know Joe Biden, may, people that may or may well be past their prime. Now I hate to be derogatory. I I, I don't want to say that these are these are great people too. I don't agree with all of them. Um, I you know I'm more conservative myself. I didn't Joe vote for Joe Biden, but. You know, like, a, a, is there value in an age limit? And I say that from the Republican side too. Mitch McConnell and all the memes about freezing up at the state at the podium is the third or fourth time we're on now, and what that looks like. So something to consider. Number 10, the inhabitants of the United States are liable to be dragged from the vicinity of their own country or state to answer the litigious or unjust suit of an adversary on the most distant borders of the continent. In short, the appellate the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Federal Court includes an unwarrantable stretch of power over the liberty, life, and property of the subject to the wide continent of America. This was an important distinction of power for the Constitution. That was a big problem with the Articles of Confederation. It was this loose affiliation of states to where there was very little consistency between the states. States had so much power to do whatever that they set their own rules and regulations for trade, commerce, military, all of these things that to tie them together in a country wasn't sustainable and lent itself to what probably would have been a much earlier civil war than we had and probably multiple civil wars because there was no uniform code, at least with some rules and guidelines for all of the states together. So he sees that as a weakness. It, it eventually is seen that's why we can be a country, you know. That is a big part of what has made us successful today and what was extremely important for those formative years because, you know, Rhode Island may not be able to defend itself at all, but one of the bigger southern colonies would have had a, a huge militia that, you know, could have taken over another state if they really wanted to or 
you know, a smaller state wouldn't have been able to survive economically or, you know, an abolitionist state would have had a huge disadvantage economically as well because they're not benefiting from the free labor of people and things like that. So he sees it as a disadvantage, but it's very important to the unity of the country. And that's one of these examples of like compromise needs to happen. It is worth giving some things up for the greater good. You have to be able to, you know, not miss the forest through the trees kind of thing. So 11, one representative to 30,000 inhabitants is a very inadequate representation. And every man who is not lost to all sense of freedom to his country must reprobate the idea of Congress altering by law or on any pretense, whatever, interfering with any regulations for time, places, and manner of choosing our own representatives. That was part of the compromise. We had the two for every state in the Senate to represent states equally. Then we have the 435 representatives that we have today. Obviously, that's changed over time, but... We did try to take into account, though those brilliant minds in the convention back then did try to take into account both equal representation for larger and smaller states in one house, and then in the other, taking into account population and representation there. It's tough to see. Now, granted, I'm not in his shoes, and you know, but it but it is tough to see how what what is the answer then if it's not in his in his world at this time with the population one representative to 30,000 if not that then what because even if you just took 30,000 alone which the country was already bigger than that you know you you're going to get 30,000 people into a room and try to get a consensus on anything good luck like that can't happen there has to be some representation and the line has to be drawn somewhere so you know, it's easy to throw out a problem, but what's the solution? Number 12, if the sovereignty of America is designed to be elective, the circumscribing the votes to only 10 electors in this state and the same proportion in all the others is nearly tantamount to the exclusion of the voice of the people in the choice of their first magistrate. It is vesting the choice solely in an aristocratic junto who may easily combine in each state to place at the head of the union the most convenient instrument for despotic sway. So he's pointing out that the danger of this representation, the electors and things like that, is that they can be manipulated for political gain and getting whatever desired result in a democratic election you might want and influencing the vote in that way to seize power of the country. Ironic, because this is the man that created the term gerrymandering, which is specifically manipulating voter populations for a specific election result for a specific party. So it's like, this is a, this is a fear that he's laying out as one of his main points. And one of the main reasons he's remembered today is for gerrymandering. That's, that's kind of funny. Number 13, a Senate chosen for six years will, in most instances, be in an appointment for life, as the influence of such a body over the minds of the people will be co-equal to the extensive powers with which they are vested. And they will not only forget, but be forgotten by their constituents. A branch of the Supreme Legislature thus set beyond all responsibility is totally repugnant to every principle of a free government. Number 14, there is no provision by a Bill of Rights to guard against the dangerous encroachments of power in too many instances to be named, but I cannot pass over in silence the insecurity in which we are left with regard to warrant unsupported by evidence. 
The daring experiment of granting writs of assistance in a former arbitrary administration is not yet forgotten in the Massachusetts, nor can we be so ungrateful to the memory of the patriots who counteracted their operation, as so soon after their manly exertions to save us from such a detestable instrument of arbitrary power, to subject ourselves to the insolence of any petty revenue officer to enter our houses, search, insult, and seize at pleasure. We are told by gentlemen of too much virtue and real probity to suspect he has a design to deceive, that the whole constitution is a declaration of rights, but mankind must think for themselves, and to many very judicious and discerning characters, the whole constitution, with very few exceptions, appears a perversion of the rights of the particular states and of private citizens. But the gentleman goes on to tell us that the primary object is the general government, and that the rights of individuals are only incidentally mentioned, and that there was a clear impropriety on being very particular about them. But asking pardon for dissenting from such respectable authority, who has been led into several mistakes, more from his predilection in favor of certain modes of government than from a want of understanding or veracity. The rights of individuals ought to be the primary object of all government and cannot be too securely guarded by the most explicit declarations in their favor. This has been the opinion of the Hamdens, the Pims, and many other illustrious names that have stood forth in defense of English liberties. And even the Italian master in politics, the subtle and renowned Machiavel, acknowledges that no republic ever yet stood on a stable foundation without satisfying the common people. Now that is probably his best point. The rights, and we'll just, we'll just repeat that quick sentence right there as the best point, because that's worth remembering, and that's the inspiration for the Bill of Rights to accompany the Constitution. Because the rights of individuals ought to be the primary object of all government and cannot be too securely guarded by the most explicit declarations in their favor. Beautiful. Because he said, these people are going to deceive you by saying the Constitution protects your rights, It'll be all right. You'll be good. And that, that's a valid concern. The Constitution was pretty vague in a lot of parts. In other parts, oddly specific, but in many ways, pretty vague. And he's, he's arguing that they will deceive us by saying, it'll be all right. It's in the Constitution. It's good. And as we've seen shortly after and for many, many years after this, and even continuing today, but strangely enough, with the people that wrote the Constitution themselves, there was immediate arguments over everything about what the Constitution meant. What did they mean? It came from their minds and their hands. They were there. They literally wrote it. And I mean, the arguments on the interpretation that James Madison had over his own writing that other people approved in many parts of the Constitution, it was huge. So he's saying that the rights of individuals cannot be overstated. It cannot be too explicit. Explicit. It must be overstated that this, these are our rights and the purpose of government is to preserve them. Beautiful. Beautiful. Good job, Gear. Number 15, the difficulty, if not impracticability, of exercising the equal and equitable powers of government by a single legislature over an extent of territory that reaches from the Mississippi to the Western Lakes and from them to the Atlantic Ocean is an insuperable objection to the adoption of the new system. Mr. Hutchinson, the great championship for arbitrary power in the multitude of his machinations to subvert the liberties in this country, was obliged to acknowledge in one of his letters that from the extent of country from north 
to South, the scheme of one government was impracticable. But if the authors of the present visionary project can be, by the arts of deception, precipitation, and address, obtain a majority of suffrages in the conventions of the states to try the hazardous experiment, they may then make the same inglorious boast with this insidious politician, who may perhaps be their model, that the union of the colonies was pretty well broken, and that he hoped to never see it renewed. Number 16. It is an indisputed fact that not one legislature in the United States had the most distant idea when they first appointed members for a convention entirely commercial, or when they afterwards authorized them to consider on some amendments of the Federal Union that they would, without any warrant from their constituents, presume on so bold and daring a stride, so ultimately to destroy the state governments and offer a consolidated system, irreversible but on conditions that the smallest degree of penetration must discover to be impracticable. Number 17. The first appearance of the article which declares the ratification of nine states sufficient for the establishment of the new system wears the face of dissension, is a subversion of the union of the confederated states, and tends to the introduction of anarchy and civil convulsions, and may be a means of involving the whole country in blood. Now see, this is another instant where I would take exactly those words that he said and use them as an argument in the other direction to hold hostage any progress for the sake of unanimous agreement? I mean, how would anything ever get done? We're making arguments against representation here, but even when you break it down just to the 13, that, that he wanted nine, they needed nine of the 13 to ratify the Constitution. He's saying that that's evil, that's dissension, that's despotism, like they're manipulating the system to get what they want. It should have to be everybody agreeing. I, I don't agree with that. I think that's short-sighted. I mean, just think if everybody in Congress had to agree on one thing to move forward with it, nothing would ever get done, even with a smaller country as it was then. Number 18, the mode in which this Constitution is recommended to the people to judge without either the advice of Congress or the legislatures of the several states is very reprehensible. It is an attempt to force it upon them before it could be thoroughly understood and may leave us in that situation that in the first moments of slavery in the minds of the people, agitated by the remembrance of their lost liberties, will be like the sea in a tempest that sweeps down every mound of security. I love the imagery. I mean, it's the reason that that's what attracted me to... Gary in the first place was these hilarious quotes about, you know, genitalia for in some instances, but here with that, your liberty will be taken over like a tempest, the sea washing away your rights and all of those kind of things. I, I just love it. But it is needless to enumerate other instances in which the proposed constitution appears contradictory to the first principles which ought to govern mankind. And it is equally so to inquire into the motives that induced to so bold a step as the annihilation of the independence and sovereignty of the 13 distinct states. So he's making an argument here that the constitution isn't just going, it's not going to unite the states, it will destroy them. It, which I think that's unfair, even for his time. That it's uh, it's an unfair attack. That that's too extreme. That's not looking at both sides there, and which is probably what you know did him in in the first place. But you know when you're taking a too extreme stance, there are some instances where it's necessary to play the game. But I think if you're, I think at a time where you were held so concretely to your words and to what you wrote and what you sent around, it would. It, it is folly to go too far. And I, I think that's too far. It's clear that even if they didn't get it completely right the first time, that it's not going to 
destroy the independence and sovereignty of the distinct states. But many people thought that on the Republican end. But in reality, it's like, let's take a little bit of that independence to for the, for the benefit of us all so that we can actually survive. Because if we don't, we're not going to survive and there's not going to be any independence at all. It's not going to be anything to, to be independent with. They are but too obvious through the whole progress of the business from the first shutting up of the doors of the federal convention and resolving that no member should correspond with gentlemen in the different states on the subject under discussion till the trivial proposition of recommending a few amendments was artfully ushered into the convention of the Massachusetts. The constitutional convention was secret. People weren't allowed to go out and discuss what they were doing and, and those kind of things. They wanted to get a product done and then put it out and then recommend amendments based on what they had, but they needed a starting point. I see the necessity for it. Yes, I think the notion and the principle is there that it would be nice if everybody could be involved in everything, but they're, you know, that that's a democracy. Not everybody can be. So you work with what, what can reasonably be done. The question that were then before that honorable assembly were profound and important. They were of such magnitude and extent that the consequences may run parallel with the existence of the country, and to see them waived and hastily terminated by a measure too absurd to require a serious refutation raises the honest indignation of every true lover of his country. Nor are they less grieved that the ill policy and arbitrary disposition of some of the sons of America has thus precipitated to the contemplation and discussion of questions that no one could rationally suppose would have been agitated among us, till time had blotted out the principles on which the late revolution was grounded, or to the last traits of the many political tracts which defended the separation from Britain, and the rights of men were consigned to everlasting oblivion. After the severe conflicts this country has suffered, it is presumed that they are disposed to make every reasonable sacrifice before the altar of peace. But when we contemplate the nature of men and consider them originally on an equal footing, subject to the same feelings, stimulated by the same passions, and recollecting the struggles they have recently made, for the security of their civil rights it cannot be expected that the inhabitants of the Massachusetts can be easily lulled into a fatal security by the declamatory effusions of gentlemen who, contrary to the experience of all ages, would persuade them there is no danger to be apprehended from vesting discretionary powers in the hands of men which he may or may not abuse. The very suggestion that we ought to trust to the precarious hope of amendments in her dress after we have voluntarily fixed the shackles on our own necks should have awakened to a double degree of caution. This people have not forgotten the artful insinuations of a former governor when pleading the unlimited authority of parliament before the legislature of the Massachusetts, nor that his arguments were very similar to some lately urged by gentlemen who boast of opposing his measures with halters about their necks. So he's arguing that, you know, we've seen Britain do this. We've This is how things go bad through secrecy. They're going to place the shackles and promise that we can amend it later if something proves necessary. And that's why they were keeping it secret. And, you know, it is humanity. There's suppose there was risk of that like there is in everything. But it's like conspiracy theories. You know, there has to be a line somewhere. It, you... If you reject all truth and all reality and all logic and reasoning, where do you leave yourself to grow? There is no ground to stand on. You're just going to be subject to whatever, whoever you think is right tells you. And that's, that's a dangerous road. So a legitimate fear, but you know, we got to work with what we got. 
We were then told by him in all the soft language of insinuation that no form of government, of human construction, can be perfect, that we had nothing to fear, that we had no reason to complain, that we had only to acquiesce in their illegal claims and to submit to the requisition of Parliament. And doubtless the lenient hand of government would redress all grievances and remove the oppressions of the people. Yet we soon saw armies of mercenaries encamped on our plains, talking about the British here, our commerce ruined, our harbors blockaded, and our cities burnt. It may be replied that this was in consequence of an obstinate defense of our privileges. This may be true, and when the ultima ratio is called to aid, the weakest must fall. But the let but let the best informed historian produce an instance when bodies of men were entrusted with power and the proper checks relinquished if they were ever found destitute of ingenuity sufficient to furnish pretenses to abuse it. And the people at large are already sensible that the liberties which America has claimed, which reason has justified and which have not been and which have been so gloriously defended by the swords of the brave are not about to fall before the tyranny of foreign conquest. It is native usurpation that is shaking the foundations of peace and spreading the sable curtain of despotism over the United States. The banners of freedom were erected in the wilds of America by our ancestors, while the wolf prowled for his prey on the one hand and more savage man on the other. They have been since rescued from the invading hand of foreign power by the valor and blood of their posterity, and there was reason to hope that they would continue for ages to illumine a court of the globe, by nature kindly separated from the proud monarchies of Europe, in the infernal darkness of Asiatic slavery. And it is to be feared we shall soon see this country rushing into the extremes of confusion and violence in consequence of the proceeding of a set of gentlemen who, disregarding the purposes of their appointment, have assumed powers unauthorized by any commission, have unnecessarily rejected the Confederation of the United States, and annihilated the sovereignty and independence of the individual governments. The causes which have inspired a few men to assemble for very different purposes with such a degree of temerity as to break with a single stroke the Union of America and disseminate the seeds of discourse through the land may be easily investigated when we survey the partisans of monarchy and the state conventions urging the adoption of a mode of government that militates with the former professions and exertions of this country and with all ideas of republicanism and the equal rights of men. This really shows, put yourself in their shoes, right or wrong, it shows the severity and the reverence that should be given to the subject that they are voting on. Because all of these You know, some more far-fetched than others, but they're all legitimate fears of the people of the time. That, look, you know, Britain came, they, they, they dumped their mercenaries on us. They did whatever they wanted with us. They promised redress and that our complaints would be heard, but it never happened. And they just forced us into compliance and people died. Our cities were burned. Our rights were taken and trampled on and all of these things. So all of that put together, these are legitimate fears on a backdrop of the lives like people had lived this. This wasn't in a history book. This was the lives they lived. And these were things that could happen. It was a risk that they were having to take. Were these people able, were these people men of integrity that could resist those temptations of power and despotism that he's talking about? And he's pointing out that You know, he's making the point here just to stoke the fire of that fear even more. Our enemy is not across the ocean. It's right here in our doors. This Constitution is going to take us from the inside. It's important to note that Elbridge Gerry did have the integrity and the class to be able to support the Constitution to the best of his ability after it was ratified. He made his argument. He dissented. He tried to convince people of his cause. The majority stood, 
it was ratified and our constitution was formed and he then said, okay. And I think that is a fine example of how we should all be as citizens and voters. I didn't vote for Joe Biden. There are a lot of things that Joe Biden does that I don't agree with. Some that that I think are, I mean, just so egregiously wrong that we will regret them for generations. But I still pray for his success every day. I pray for his health and his leadership and his wisdom and that he would be successful in leading our country. And that's that's an important functioning of the democracy. We need that. We, we should pray for our leaders, whether we agree with them or not. Cast your vote, campaign, wear a t-shirt, do whatever you want. But once they're in power, we need to support them and then, you know, give it another go at the next election. But wishing poorly of the leaders of our country isn't going to help your cause any more than, than it's going to hurt your cause more than help it. Passion, prejudice, and error are characteristics of human nature. And as it cannot be accounted for on any principles of philosophy, religion, or good policy, to these shades in the human character must be attributed the mad zeal of some, to precipitate to a blind adoption of the measures of the late federal convention without giving opportunity for better information to those who are misled by influence or ignorance into erroneous opinions. Literary talents may be prostituted and the powers of genius debased to subserve the purposes of ambition or avarice. But the feelings of the heart will dictate the language of truth, and the simplicity of her accents will proclaim the infamy of those who betrayed the rights of the people under the specious and popular pretense of justice, consolidation, and dignity. Key words of the Constitution uniting people under it for a central government. He's saying these are the key words you need to look out for because they'll get you. It is presumed that the great body of the people unite in sentiment with the writer of these observations who most devoutly prays that the public credit may rear her declining head and remunerative justice pervade the land. Nor is there a doubt if a free government is continued that time and industry will enable both the public and private debtor to liquidate their arranges in the most equitable manner. They wish to see the confederated states bound together by the most indissoluble union, but without renouncing their separate sovereignties and independence and becoming tributaries to a consolidated fabric of aristocratic tyranny. They wish to see government established and peaceably holding the reins with honor, energy, and dignity. But they wish for no federal city whose cloud-capped towers may screen the state culprit from the hands of justice, while its exclusive jurisdiction may protect the rights of army, the riot of armies encamped within its limits. They de deprecate discord and civil convulsions, but they are not yet generally prepared for the ungrateful Israelites to ask a king, nor are their spirits sufficiently broken to yield the best of their olive grounds to his servants and to see their sons appointed to run before his chariots. It has been observed by a zealous advocate for the new system that most governments are the result of fraud or violence, and this with design to recommend its acceptance, but has not almost every step toward its fabrication been fraudulent in the extreme? Did not the prohibition strictly enjoined by the general convention that no member should make any communication to his constituents or to gentlemen of consideration and abilities in other states bear evident marks of fraudulent designs? This circumstance is regretted in strong terms by Mr. Martin, a member from Maryland, who acknowledges he had no idea that all the wisdom and integrity and virtue of the states was contained in that convention, and that he wished to have corresponded with a gentleman of eminent political characters abroad and to give their sentiments due weight. He adds, so extremely solicitous were they that their proceedings should not transpire. 
that the members were prohibited from taking copies of their resolutions or extracts from the journal without the express permission by vote. In the hurry with which it had been urged to the acceptance of the people without giving time by adjournments, for better information and more unanimity, has a deceptive appearance, and it finally driven to resistance as the only alternative between that and servitude, till in the confusion of discord the reins should be seized by the violence of some enterprising genius that may sweep down the last barrier of liberty. It must be added that the score of criminality with which the fraud usurpation at Philadelphia may be chargeable. Heaven averts such a tremendous sense. And let us still be more happy termination of the present ferment. May the people be calm and wait a legal redress. May the mad transport of some of our infatuated capital subside, and every influential character through the states make the most prudent exertions for a new general convention who may vest adequate powers in Congress for all national purposes without annihilating the individual governments and drawing blood from every poor by his taxes. Impositions and illegal restrictions. This step might again reestablish the Union, restore tranquility to the ruffled minds of the inhabitants, and save America from the distresses, dreadful even in contemplation. So he's, he's pointing out again, he's really harping on the secrecy of the convention was its downfall. We can't trust these people. Quoting some sarcastic remarks from other people, well, I had no idea that all the minds needed were in there and that all of America was contained in that room. And but again, there has to be a line somewhere. You can't push all of America into one room and have a debate between thousands of people and expect to get anywhere. So luckily, the people in the room had good intentions for the country and they wanted to see it succeed. And we came up with a document that was workable and we amended it and added a Bill of Rights and ran with it as we've seen today. So that's good. I thought it was interesting. I, I really like how he draws on historical context and you know, as we saw earlier with plays and Roman mythology and history and things like that, you know, the example of the Israelites asking for a king. If you um, look in, in the biblical accounts of, of God creating the nation of Israel and how Israel was in the wilderness and they had just left Egypt through the plagues that, and, you know, God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and they don't have a government, they don't have slave drivers, they don't have masters and all those things. And eventually, they ask for a king, like a human king, they're being led by God himself, but they're asking for a king, they want to be like other nations, things like that. And he kind of pulled on that experience and what we have to learn, learn from the from from what they were going through in that day. And I think that's very important to, to, to pull from there's a lot to unpack there. The great art of governing is to lay aside all prejudices and attachments to, pop, to particular opinions, classes, or individual characters to consult the spirit of the people to give way to it, and in so doing to give it a turn capable of inspiring those sentiments, which may induce them to relish a change, which an alteration of circumstances may hereafter make necessary. The education of the advocates for monarchy should have taught them, and their memory should have suggested that monarchy is a species of government fit only for a people, too much corrupted by luxury, avarice, and a passion for pleasure, to have any love for their country, and whose vices the fear of punishment alone is able to restrain, but by no means calculated for a nation that is poor, and at the same time tenacious of their liberty. Animated with a disgust to tyranny and inspired with a generous feeling of patriotism and liberty, and at the same time like the ancient Spartans have been hardened by temperance and manly exertions, equally despising the fatigues of the field and the fear of enemies. 
And while they change their ground, they should recollect that aristocracy is a still more formidable foe to public virtue and the prosperity of a nation that under such a government, her patriots become mercenaries, her soldiers cowards, and the people slaves. Though several state conventions have assented to and ratified, yet the voice of people appears at present strong against the adoption of the Constitution. By the chicanery, intrigue, and false coloring of those who plume themselves more on their education and abilities than their political, patriotic, or private virtues. By the imbecility of some and the duplicity of others, a majority of the Convention of Massachusetts have been flattered with the ideas of amendments when it will be too late to complain. While several very worthy characters too timid for their situation magnified the hopeless alternative between the dissolution of the bands of all government and receiving the proffered system in toto, after long endeavoring to reconcile it to their consciences, swallowed the indigestible panacea, and in a kind of a sudden desperation lent their signature to the dereliction of the honorable station they held in the Union, and have broken over the solemn compact by which they were bound to support their own excellent constitution till the period of revision. Yet Virginia, equally large and respectable, and who have done honor to themselves by their vigorous exertions from the first dawn of independence, have not yet acted upon the question. They have wisely taken time to consider before they introduce innovations of a most dangerous nature. Her inhabitants are brave, her burgesses are free, and they have a governor who dares to think for himself and to speak his opinion without first pouring libations on the altar of popularity, though it should militate with some of the most accomplished and illustrious characters." It's interesting because it seems that he's pointing to the governor of Virginia and the wisdom that he had in not immediately going to the people, but doing his best to make a wise decision before seeing how popular it was with the people. And that's basically what the Constitutional Convention was doing in principle that he has such a problem with and is using as a basis for his argument. I also liked his point of, you know, there's more to a monarchy than just the obvious evils, but that the reason that it's allowed to exist is because the people become complacent, they become luxurious. There's the aristocracy and the people benefiting from it. And then there's the people who just can't do anything about it, the feudal peasant system and things like that. So it's a, it's a very good point. And it, it's, I think it's also worth looking at today, you know, how many people like, like right now we have a democratic Senator who is, very widely known and being accused of taking bribes, votes bought and paid for. And like, we know this, it, you know, it hasn't gone to court to be convicted yet, but it's pretty, pretty widely accepted that this is happening. And you couldn't pay people to, to care. Nobody knows that guy's name. Nobody cares. You know, if you can't, like I, I've said before, just in conversation, if people can't eat it, if they can't smoke it, if they can't watch it, they don't care. You could, you could slap it on a billboard, you know, it doesn't matter. And that's kind of a good picture of where we're at today. You know, would that be allowed to stand in revolutionary America in early American history? You know, that, that level of independence and things that they had fought for was so fresh that the idea that someone could get away with something like that. And he's saying that under a monarchy, this is what the population turns into. And I would argue that that's the majority of our population today. Is, you know, if something is going to go wildly wrong, people like to get excited about conspiracy theories and just suspicion of election fraud and unconfirmed facts, things that people don't even pretend to own up to. 
But, you know, and they'll get excited about that. But we have real life problems that are actually happening and can be confirmed and verifiable of like bad things and distortion and corruption and all of this stuff. And nobody cares. Nobody knows that guy's name. It doesn't matter. So it, it's just very, it's an interesting picture that, that you might put that lens on today and see where we're at. Maryland, who has no local interest to lead her to adopt, will doubtless reject the system. I hope the same characters will still live, and that the same spirit which dictated to them a wise and cautious care against sudden revolutions in government and made them the last state that acceded to the independence of America, will lead them to support what they'd so liber deliberately claimed. Georgia, apprehensive of a war with the savages, has acceded in order to ensure protection. Pennsylvania has struggled through much in the same manner as the Massachusetts against as the Massachusetts against the manly feelings and the masterly reasonings of a very respectable part of the convention. They've adopted the system and seen some of its authors burnt in effigy, their towns thrown into riot and confusion in the minds of the people agitated by apprehension and discord. New Jersey and Delaware have united in the measure from the locality of their situation and the selfish motives which too generally govern, govern mankind. The federal city and the seat of government will naturally attract the intercourse of strangers, the youth of enterprise, and the wealth of the nation to the central state. I thought one interesting note up there was how he pointed out that to Maryland's advantage that they were the last one to consent to the independence of America. They, they wanted to stick with, they put that much thought and caution into the decision. I suppose that could be taken both ways. Like, yeah, I mean, I, that is a, a weighty decision that should be taken with thought and caution and understanding the risks and the sacrifice and the blood that's going to be spilled because of it. I guess that's my thoughts there. I just thought it was interesting that he pointed out. Connecticut has pushed it through with the precip precipitation of her neighbor with few dissident voices, but more from irritation and resentment to a sister state, perhaps partiality to herself and her commercial regulations than from a comprehensive view of the system as a regard to the welfare of all. But New York has motives that will undoubtedly lead her to rejection without being afraid to appeal to the understanding of mankind to justify the grounds of their refusal to adopt a constitution that even the framers dare not to risk to the hazard of revision, amendment, or reconsideration least the whole superstructure should be demolished by more skillful and discreet architects. I know not what part the Carolinas will take, but I hope their determinations will comport with the dignity and freedom of the country. Their decisions will have great weight in the scale. But equally important are the small states of New Hampshire and Rhode Island, New York, the Carolinas, Virginia, Maryland, and these two lesser states may yet support the liberties of the continent. If they refuse a ratification or propose their proceedings till the spirits of the community have time to cool, there is little doubt but the wise measure of another federal convention will be adopted when the members would have the advantage of viewing at large to the medium of truth the objections that have been made from various quarters. Such a measure might be attended with the most salutary effects and prevent the dread consequences of civil feuds. But even if some of those large states should hastily accede, yet we have frequently seen in the story of revolution relief spring from a quarter least expected. So he's putting on here that another constitution conventional convention will be held where everybody can, you know, more people can have input and their concerns will be heard and all of these things. And they won't be asked to ratify a constitution with things that they don't like in it. I think that's kind of dreaming, you know, again, you got to start somewhere, you got to get something in there. And I think it was smart too. I mean, that's easy to say on this side of history. I, I understand that, but I think it's smart to understand that we got to get something on the books and we got to get going and we can amend it later as needed. 
Though the virtues of a Cato could not save Rome, nor the abilities of a Padilla defend the citizens of Castile from falling under the yoke of Charles, yet a tell once suddenly rose from a little obscure city and boldly rescued the liberties of his country. Every age has its broody and its deshi, as well as its Caesars and Sejani. The happiness of mankind depends much on the modes of government and the virtues of the governs, and America may yet produce characters who have genius and capacity sufficient to form the manners and correct the morals of the people and virtue enough to lead their country to freedom. Luckily, they had that. Washington was there. Since their dismemberment from the British Empire, America has in many instances resembled the conduct of a restless, vigorous, luxurious youth. Prematurely emancipated from the authority of a parent, but without the experience necessary to direct him to act with dignity or discretion. Thus we have seen her break the shackles of foreign dominion and all the blessings of peace restored on the most honorable terms. She acquired the liberty of framing her own laws, choosing her own magistrates, and adopting manners and modes of government the most favorable to the freedom and happiness of society. But how little have we availed ourselves of these superior advantages? The glorious fabric of liberty successfully reared with so much labor and assiduity totters to the foundation and may be blown away as the bubble of fancy by the rude breath of military combinations and politicians of yesterday. Why, yes, Gare Bear, but that is exactly why we need a constitution, because we could be just blown away by any country that even on a whim just decides to throw a little military together and sail them on over. Like, that's why we have to unite, because they come and invade our land and two colonies and states decide that they want to defend and the rest decide to just throw up their hands and give in. Oh, I mean, what are we going to do? We have to be united. That that was the That's more of an argument for the Constitution. Number 19 and final point. It is true this country lately armed in opposition to regal despotism, impoverished by the expenses of a long war, and unable immediately to fulfill their public or private engagements that appeared in some instances with a boldness of spirit that seemed to set at defiance all authority, government, or order on the one hand, while on the other there has been not only a secret wish but an open avowal of the necessity of drawing the reins of government much too taut. Not only for a republicanism, but for a wise and limited monarchy. But the character of this people is not averse to a degree of subordination. The truth of this appears from the easy restoration of tranquility. After a dangerous form... After a dangerous insurrection in one of the states, this also evinces a little necessity of a complete revolution of government throughout the Union. But it is a Republican principle that the majority should rule, and if the spirit of moderation should be cultivated on both sides till the voice of the people at large could be fairly heard, it should be held sacred. And if on such a scrutiny the proposed Constitution should appear repugnant to their characters and wishes, if they, in the language of late elegant pen, should acknowledge that no confusion in my mind is more terrible to them than the stern, disciplined, regularity, and vaunted police of arbitrary governments, where every heart is depraved by fear, where mankind dare not assume their natural characters, where the free spirit must crouch to the slave in office, where genius must repress her effusions, or like the Egyptian worshippers, offer them in sacrifice to the calves in power, and where the human mind always in shackles shrinks from every generous effort. Who would then have the effrontery to say it not to be thrown, it ought not to be thrown out with indignation, however some respectable names have appeared to support it? But if after all, on a dispassionate and fair discussion, the people generally give their voices for a voluntary dereliction of their privileges. Let every individual who chooses the active scenes of life strive to support the peace and unanimity of his country, though every other blessing may expire. 
and while the statesman is plotting for power and the courtier practicing the arts of dissimulation without check, while the rapacious are growing rich by oppression and fortune throwing her gifts into the lap of fools, let the sublimer characters, the philosophic lovers of freedom, who have wept over her exit, retire to the calm shades of contemplation, where they may look down with pity on the inconsistency of human nature, the revolutions of states, the rise of kingdoms, and the fall of empires. Epic. It was beautiful. L. Bridge, L.B., E-Money, E-Train, Gear Bear, Jerry. He does have a way with words. Now, I'll tell you what. After a long day, getting a good day in at work, getting some exercise in, getting some sun, shower, relax, and just sit down with some old history and a lamp and a candle and a mic and just digging in and digesting it and talking it out. It's a very relaxing healing process. And if anybody made it this far, good for you. That's awesome. Thanks for joining me. I love it. Glad to have you. Please feel free to drop a comment in. Let me know what you think. Any thoughts? If you think I got anything wrong or have any other special insights, please reach out. You can follow me on Facebook, probably where I got the most traction, or leave a comment on Spotify, leave a rating. That'd be great. Um, and we'll keep diving in. I think we'll probably have a little bit more of Hamilton left. And then I'm thinking about taking a turn in direction to a lesser known Samuel Adams, someone, a, a dear friend recently gave me a good book from uh, on Samuel Adams. So I'm excited to read more into that and see if there's any good writings that we can expand on here with him. So that would be wonderful. And um Cherno's biography has just been so wonderful on Hamilton that I, I cannot wait to read more of his work. So I'll probably read, I believe he wrote one on Washington as well. And I've gained so much more respect than I thought I had for Washington through Hamilton's biography that I can't imagine what I'm going to get to experience in, in Washington's. But I appreciate everyone joining me on this journey. We're going to become experts in early American history. It's been a wonderful ride so far, and I'm looking forward to many more. This is The American Reader with Jacob McDonald, and I'm out.